This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. In many respects, we can see meditation as an exploration uh, as a science of the mind. You know, because the mind and body are following natural laws, and meditation is a way of exploring those laws. So in that sense, it's quite precise and scientific in its introspective method. Now, the Buddha taught with great precision about the liberating insights of the Four Noble Truths and the understanding that attachment is the basic cause of suffering. And he taught with tremendous clarity about the possibilities of freedom. And he characterized the whole path as coming to the end of suffering. But meditation is also an art. It's not only in the scientific mode, it's also in the artistic mode. And tonight I want to speak about one particular quality of mind that needs to be practiced and understood in the context of meditation as an art because it's a very powerful force that needs a very delicate touch. And so we need to understand kind of the nuances and how to work with it in a very delicate and yet impactful way. So the Pali word for this mind state, and Pali is the language of ancient India, and the the texts have come down to us in the language of Pali. It's very closely uh, akin to Sanskrit. So the Pali word for this mind state is virya. Virya. And it's usually translated as energy or effort, although it has many other connotations, but these are the two that I'm going to really focus on this evening. 
without the development or the strengthening or the application of virya, of energy and effort in our lives, we simply stay caught in the habitual patterns of our conditioning. It takes effort to come out of those well-established patterns. And in a more negative way, we could say the long, well-established ruts. Because that's our habit. Those are the, the neural pathways have been well-established in those ways. And so if we just let things go on as they are without the cultivation of some energy or some effort, then that's our lives. It's just the unfolding of the habit patterns of our conditioning. One of the problems in understanding virya is that the word effort in English has many connotations. And it's very easy to misunderstand what effort means in the context of meditation practice. Because it's easy to conflate effort with kind of an over-intense focus. You know, so we're making effort to be with the breath and we're intensely focusing. Or we might conflate it with some kind of dharma ambition and an over-striving and over-efforting. And it's very common for people in the practice in trying to practice virya, trying to practice right effort, caught up in this shadow side of it, you know, where we're really just making ourselves more and more tense. Too little effort, on the other hand, and this is a common experience for meditators when we're not making much effort, that really leads, especially in the context of a retreat, It leads to discouragement, it leads to doubt, it leads to disappointment, because nothing much is happening, because we're not making enough effort, we're not applying enough energy. So we begin to see the dial, you know, too much and we get tense, too little and we just lose it and nothing much is happening, and we feel a lot of doubt and discouragement. So when we appreciate the art of meditation, and we see clearly the necessary and subtle adjustments we need to be making all along the way, it's not something we get and find and then we have it for the rest of our meditative career. This is an ongoing tuning of the mind, just as with a musical instrument. You know, it's not that you tune it once and for the rest of your life it stays that way. It needs to be tuned each time we play. We need to tune our minds in exactly the same way. I'm going to be talking some about how to do that. When we are, it arouses the interest and the energy to play at the edge of our comfort zone. And this this is one way of coming out of our habituated patterns where we start exploring the unfamiliar. 
You know, when things, both in our lives and in our meditation practice, begin to feel a little uncomfortable, we're outside of the realm of what we're familiar with or what we're comfortable with. Maybe it's some strong emotions or some strong bodily sensations or some situation. That forward edge is exactly where we want to be. I'm doing a little internal editing (laughs) because the talk is long and these extraneous stories come to mind. (laughs) I'll leave that one. (laughs) It's only if we arouse the energy to play at the edge and have interest in discovering what can be learned there That's what's going to take us out, basically, of the dream of our lives. You know, we're just living in in the dream of our thought, emotional, physical patterns. We're just going along, the momentum of that. So to awaken from that and to see other possibilities, it it takes some effort, it takes some energy. At the beginning of a retreat, or at the beginning of your practice, very commonly people experience the mind, and this is a phrase I read someplace, describing the mind as tumbling like a waterfall. You know, just this endless tumble of thoughts and feelings and images and distractions and hindrances, and every once in a while we remember the breath, and then again the mind is just caught up. And so that's, that's normal. That's, it's not unusual. This is what happens as we first get started, you know, to build some momentum. Does that sound at all familiar to you? (laughs) So I think it can be reassuring to know that this is common. It's not not that this is just me and I'm a terrible yogi and da-da-da-da. This is what the mind does as we're first getting started in this process. And as I say whether started as a, as a new meditator or just starting the beginning of a retreat. One of the things that I love so much about the practice is that we are continually relearning and learning new things about some of the basic principles of practice that we may have heard at the very beginning, so like right effort. But a lot of what I'm going to be sharing tonight is, after so many years of practice, of just things I'm learning now about making right effort in my practice. So it's an ongoing process of opening, and that's what makes this whole path so extraordinary. It's like the Dharma is vast, and as we enter into it and engage, it just keeps opening to newer and newer understandings. So begin just by talking about the very simple effort that we make to be with our primary object of attention. You know, here we'll be using the breath as an example of that, but it applies equally well 
to any other anchor you may be using as a way of stabilizing the attention. So it might be the breath, it might be the whole body, it might be some touch points, it might be sound. Different of you will find different primary objects to come back to as a way of stabilizing the attention. But for now, I'll be using the breath as an example of this. So as we pay attention to the breath, at first, the first aspect of right effort is to refine our perception of the actual sensations that we're feeling with each breath. Now, at first, maybe it's just we know we're breathing in and out and we don't even feel any sensations. But we know we're breathing in and out. That's enough. That, that's the beginning. You know, we're there. But as we continue, we go from the simple knowing we're breathing in and out. Maybe the next step would be, or the next uh, thing that might happen, the mind might start overlaying a subtle kind of image on the breath. <clears throat> you know, so maybe we feel it like waves. You know, and so we, we actually picture a wave coming in, a wave going out. It might be some other image as well. And that's okay. That's also helping us connect with the experience, but it's still an image. It's still a concept. So we drop down even further and come closer, and we begin to feel the very specific sensations of each breath. So it might be feeling the coolness or the warmth, maybe a tingling, maybe a vibration, maybe a slight pressure. They're very specific, ordinary sensations. That's the level we want to be on. You know, to come in close enough to feel the sensations, the flow of sensations within each breath. And so one of the first insights that happened from doing that is we realize that the breath is not one thing. It's not like the in-breath is one thing and the out-breath is one thing. The in-breath, it's like there's a whole series, a flow of sensations constantly changing. So we begin to break up the perception of solidity. And, And we see that what we're calling the breath is actually a flow of what we might call microscopic sensations. You know, very subtle flow. By paying attention carefully, we begin to experience that. As we engage with the awareness of the breath in this way, of course, the mind will start wondering, you know, and get lost in thought. Every time we become aware that we're lost, the practice at this point in the retreat is simply to come back and begin again. So those two words are like a magic mantra, begin again. There doesn't have to be any judgment. There doesn't have to be any assessment. There doesn't have to be any big story. This is what's going to happen for everyone. You know, we're we're with the breath, and for however long, 
mind wanders, you become aware of it, begin again, begin again, begin again. So it's very simple. You know, it doesn't have to be complicated, and it doesn't have to uh, stimulate any reactivity. It's just, this is the process, this is what happens. And it's the beginning again that strengthens and begins to stabilize our ability to stay with the breath. So we just we just keep doing it over and over again. So here we begin to go from the awareness of the actual sensations of the breath. Okay, we've established that to some extent. And it's not going to be perfect, but we feel connected in some way to the actual sensations. So at this point, we want to be aware not only of the sensations of the breath, but to also turn our attention to the nuances of our effort. So we're actually becoming mindful of how we're making effort. And this is really important, because if we're not, if we don't pay attention to that, again, we'll just drop into our habit of how we're paying attention, which may or may not be skillful. And so we have to look, okay, how am I making effort? And Saida Utejaniya, who's a Burmese uh, monk and meditation master, who has taught a lot now in the West, he emphasizes this the importance of paying attention to the attitude in our mind about what's being experienced. You follow? So it's not only the experience itself. It's looking at how is the mind relating to that experience. And in this context, particularly, what is the quality of our effort to be with the breath? We want to pay attention to that. So this is what he said. You do not need strong effort to be mindful. So that should be a relief. You do not need strong effort to be mindful. When we are present, we become aware of what is happening. When we're simply present, being present, we become aware of whatever is arising. Simply reminding yourself to be in the present moment is all the effort you need. So that's just a good reminder you know, of how to look or how to assess the quality of our effort. Are we, are we giving a little too much force or are we simply relaxed in the present? Oh, naturally aware of the breath, each one, as it presents itself. So that's something to look at. You know, when, you, when you're in the meditation, look at how the mind is relating to this. So then a question arises, how do we remind ourselves to be present? All it takes is being present, but we forget that. So then how do we remind ourselves in the midst of our meditation practice?
So there are two elements to this exploration. The first of them, which I alluded to briefly, is becoming aware of the breathing process itself. Because a common tendency for people is when we're attending to the breath, very often people experience that that initiates some kind of controlling of the breath. You know, when we start to, when we start to really be with it, somehow the very act of attention on it very often creates some kind of controlling mechanism. We're controlling the breath in some way. And I'll just mention a little later, that itself is not a super big problem, but it is easier and more effortless and relaxed when we don't control the breath. So just a few little suggestions if you notice that you are, and it can be really subtle, it's not, it's not that you're doing you know, heavy breathing, or, but even just subtle, subtle control or interference with it. If you notice that that's what's happening, a couple of ways of stepping back from that and allowing the best just come in its own natural way is first to see if you have any preconception of what you think a good breath is. You know, because people come with all kinds of ideas about meditation. <laughs> and most of them are useless. <laughs> and so we can have this, we can have some idea, oh yeah, when I'm meditating, it's supposed to be calm and the breath is supposed to be nice and smooth and long and even. And then when it's not, you know, maybe it was short or rough or agitated or whatever, so then we try to control it so that it becomes longer and smoother and calmer. That's a mistake because that's just another kind of control. Much more helpful not to have any preconception about how any one breath should be. And we just settle back aware of how it is. Do you see how simple this is? <laughs> The body is breathing. You know, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to make any effort to breathe. There's some, I don't know, some miraculous mechanism that keeps us breathing. And even when we're sleeping, the breathing is going on. So can we just settle back, you know, in that place of awareness? Oh, this breath is like this. This is a short breath. This is a long breath. This is a calm breath. This is an agitated breath. Just being aware, not trying to control it or make it different than what it is. So that would be one thing to look at if you feel that you're controlling it a bit. Another, another way of non-control, and this ties into the instruction Tara gave the other morning, you know, there is a body. It's sometimes we're controlling the breath when our focus on it has become too narrow. And we're just zeroing in on it. And the very act of zeroing in can create some kind of interference. And so what I've noticed is if I give myself the bigger framework like there is a body, or it could be sounds. 
You know, you could just be sitting listening to sounds, or there is a body, something that gives a bigger context in which to hold experience. So if we're resting in that bigger framework, it's easier to allow the breath just to come and go as it does because we're not zeroing in on it. So it's easier for it to be or to find its own natural rhythm. So you might remember to do that if you find yourself some interference. The last one I'll mention, which is also very common, is that in a in our pattern of breathing, very often there is a pause between the out-breath and the next in-breath. In, out, and a pour in, out. It's not uncommon for people in that pause to want to hurry the next breath along. You know, and sort of just waiting in that space of the pause, noting whatever is in that space, in, out, in, out. So we want, we want to pull the next breath in in order to have it there to pay attention to. <laughs> it's not unusual. I and mean, We just seem to do this. Become aware of it. You know? And again, it's just much more relaxing and easeful if we allow the breath to just find whatever rhythm it's in, in, out, pause. Maybe in the pause you go to sound, maybe in the pause you go to the whole body posture, maybe to some touch points, you know, where the body's touching the cushion or floor, some other place that you're aware of, and just waiting until the next breath comes in its own time. And after doing this, you know, when you practice this for a little time, the mind will begin to relax back from the different ways of controlling or interfering. And as I say, it's, it's not that it's so much of a problem because we could simply be aware of the controlled breath. You know, we're feeling the breath in that way, and we're, my, oh, now the breath is controlled. So it's very possible to incorporate even that into the practice but it is more relaxing and more easeful. And the whole energy system kind of softens when we're not interfering. So it would be worth just exploring a bit. So there's a Taoist expression which kind of highlights both the naturalness and the ease of non-interference, not only with the breath, but with our whole life process. And I think this is from Lao Tzu. Uh, Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes, and the grass grows by itself. Nature doesn't need us to help it along. (laughs) Can we just sit quietly, do nothing, but be aware? And spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Everything happens, everything flows. 
So it might be supportive for you or encouraging for you to realize that when you're with the breathing or you're practicing being with the breath or any other experience in this way, of just letting things come and go in their own time, no rushing, no pushing, no pulling in, we're just back and open and receptive, that every time we're doing this, that we're really learning to trust the Tao. You know, I just like that as a, as a concept. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, there's something profound going on, even in this very simple exercise. Okay, so the next step in right effort, and this is particularly what I've been exploring recently in my practice, and I found it uh, really engaging. Uh, And what's so strange to me about this whole process is, and you'll see, I mean, what I'm about to say is exceedingly simple, and things I've heard for the last 50 years. But as we go, you know, we just keep our practice going, and we can hear the same thing, same thing, and then all of a sudden we hear it in a different way. We apply it in a different way. So that's what keeps happening as we continue in our practice, and that's what makes it so rich. It's just a continual unfolding. Okay, so at this point... You know, we've learned to be with the actual sensations of the breath, beginning to watch our attitude about it, you know, whether uh, we're striving too much or over-efforting, whether we're pulling things in or not, whether we're controlling. So we've done all that kind of work. So at this point, the emphasis is on the intention to have the mind be steady for the entire duration of even a single breath. It's not enough to come into the hall with the intention, okay, I'm going to be with my breath for the next hour. Hopeless way beyond our capacity. And so we make the intention, and then it doesn't work. And so then again, we feel disappointed or struggling or whatever. It's only because our intention was way beyond what we actually can do. But I think everyone here has the capacity to set the intention for a single in-breath to stay really steady on it for just that duration. Okay, I'm going to really be close, feeling this steadily for one in-breath, and then for one out-breath, and then for one in-breath, and then for one out-breath. And we do this over and over again. This, This steadiness of attention becomes the default habit of our minds. It becomes the habit of how we pay attention. 
because we've been practicing in a very specific and precise way for short durations. Does this seem clear? I'm going to elaborate on this a little more. An unnoticed obstacle, an often unnoticed obstacle in practice to the steadiness of mind is an experience which I call the meditative disease of more or less mindful. Where we're kind of mindful, we're, ki- we're not totally lost, we're kind of there, but not fully. And you may have noticed very often this common experience. We can be with the breath or a step in walking. And even we, we are aware of the breath there and we're aware of the step, but at the same time the mind is thinking about something. So it's almost like there are two parallel tracks going on. Technically, the mind is going quickly back and forth. But experientially, it feels like they're happening simultaneously. And so we're walking and thinking, but we're kind of with the breath, but not completely. It's very easy for this either to go unnoticed, because there's enough mindfulness of the step or the breath to fool us into thinking we're really being mindful. And so not really paying attention to the fact that all these thoughts are going along at the same time, and in those moments, taking us away from the breath. So setting the intention, and this is, what I've, this is what I've been playing with. And I've been appreciating the word intentionality rather than effort in this situation, because somehow it feels more inviting rather than, (laughs) as I said in the beginning, the word effort has so many connotations for us, and some of them are not that helpful. But when I think of, that there's this intentionality dial in the mind, and we can actually, if we notice that we're in this more or less mindful state, and we see that that's what's happening, just a slight turning up of that dial of intentionality at the beginning of each sitting, at the beginning of each breath. And at first you might actually formulate it, you know, as words in the mind, but that's just to, as a beginning. After a while, you don't, you don't even need the words. But the beginning might be, okay, I'm going to be steady with this breath for the entire duration. So you're really setting that intention. And so you do a few breaths and you notice how that is. Is the mind really closer and more steady? Or is it still somewhat, you know, going off on that parallel track of thinking? If it is, so you just, the next breath, you just turn the dial of intentionality just a little bit. This is the art. It doesn't take much. It takes the slightest the slightest turning up of that intention. And it has been amazing to me how responsive the mind can be to the setting of that intention. And that within 
of very few breaths. In doing this repeatedly, at least for some time, that the mind actually does settle in to that more complete, full, uninterrupted experience of it. But it has to be for the duration that's within our capacity. So maybe it's just the in-breath and then set the intention for just the out-breath. Or maybe if you're really adept, you could do both an in and out-breath, but not more than that. (laughs) And then kind of reset the intention. So again, everything I'm saying about the breath and the setting of the intentionality to stay with it fully and notice when we're not, you know, notice when we start getting into that more or less mindful space and then just upping the intention a little bit. Everything I've said about this with regard to the breath is equally applicable to everything else. You can apply this in the walking in eating, in taking a mouthful of food. So it's a general principle of how to actualize the deepening and strengthening both of concentration and mindfulness. And as I said, it's a quicker process than you might imagine if you take it or do it in this way. If you don't, and you know, we're just going along, we're doing the practice. So even when we're in that more or less mindful state, this mindfulness there, and we're learning, and the practice is deepening, but it's a much slower process because our attention on this very subtle level is divided. And I've just been amazed, and again, this is this is kind of recent. <laughs> of how powerful it is and how immediately effective it is when we set the intentionality to be steady with each small unit of experience. So is it pretty clear to you what I mean by the steadiness of mind? That it's just on the object, it's not not in that more or less place. So this really transforms the practice. And very likely, you know, hopefully you'll be interested enough to try this. And then I could well imagine you try it a little bit and then, I don't know, the mind gets bored with it or just we fall back into the old pattern of more or less mindfulness. So don't expect it to be perfect, you know, just as we begin this practice. But I think you will have enough of an experience, even if it's for short periods of time, of how effective it is, which will hopefully then be an inspiration for you to to actually apply this more and more often in the practice. This fullness of attention has many benefits. I mean this this is this is a powerful deepening of the... It's a level jump or a level... 
it's, it's a significant deepening of the practice when the mind drops into this level of steadiness. And there are many, many benefits from it. It can save a lot of, a lot of times of distress. I'll just tell you one story. This goes back, I think in 1985, I was doing a retreat in Nepal with Saida Upandita. And the conditions in the monastery there were terrible. I mean, really, there were about five of us in one room sleeping on a cement floor with just whatever mat we had happened to bring with us. Uh, the food was not that great. The room was right next to the latrine, so all the odors were kind of, I mean, it was just... It's like, it's a little aside, there's a travel book written by the Australian Bruce Chatwin, and the title of the travel book was, What Am I Doing Here? (laughs) Because in account of all the horrible places he did as a, he went as a travel writer. So that can often come up in the meditation, what am I doing here? So I go into Saito Pandita and I kind of report, you know, on what my experience is and kind of grumbling in my mind. And all he said to me was, be more mindful. And my first thought in my mind was, thanks a lot. <laughs> Don't you realize how bad the conditions are? <laughs> but that's all he said. <laughs> so I went outside and I, well, he's this great teacher and this is what he told me. Why don't I try it? So I was doing walking meditation. And I just became more mindful in just the way I've been talking about. More deeply connected, not in that more or less place where I could be walking and still having all these thoughts about how terrible the conditions were. Just fully, fully in the experience of the sensations of movement. And all of those distressing minds are completely disappeared. There was no room for them. And the mind got more concentrated. It got more peaceful. So it was amazing. It was just the most simple and one could even say generic instruction. It hit exactly the right point. Because a lot of our distress and difficult emotions and all of that comes when we're not really being carefully mindful. So to just explore this for yourself, I'm not, you should not believe anything I say. You really shouldn't, because that doesn't get any place. Everything I say is just an invitation for you to look for yourself. These are just suggestions that I've found helpful over the years of my practice. Try it out and just see if it helps you. And you may discover your own ways of deepening. So take it in that spirit. You know, it's, it's all an exploration. Okay, so as I said, if, if we're monitoring the quality of our effort, which is an important step, we're, we're actually being mindful of how we're making effort, And then we'll notice, is it too tight? I need to relax a bit. Is it too loose? I need to 
up the ante a little bit. And this is, a, this is a continual adjustment. You want to be paying attention to this. So we just are not coasting along in the habit pattern of how we pay attention. But we're really taking that itself as an object of meditation. Because that's how it can be refined and developed. Okay, one more, one more way of dropping into the continuity and immediacy of experience. It's very interesting just to... You shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to report my experience of doing it. But it's not for you to do which is just when I'm walking into the center and just watching, you know, people, it is so clear when people are really mindful of the movement and when they're not. It's completely obvious, you know, and, and it's, it's common because we're so often, especially in transition times of going from one activity to another, or in the midst of some activity that we need to get done, we kind of get into this rushing mode of leaning forward. Okay, I have to get from here to the dining room. Or I have to rush through my yogi job or whatever. So it's very easy, even in the context of a meditation retreat, to be moving about quite unmindfully. Because we're caught up in our idea of what we're supposed to be doing or going and not really settle deeply into the experience of getting there. So one way of doing this is in the walking, as I mentioned, sometimes we can be aware just of the fact that we're moving, but we can also be aware of the sensations involved in the movement. So it's just a different level of embodiment. You know, in the first, we're kind of there. I mean, we know we're moving, so it's not that we're totally lost. But we're not fully embodied. But if as we're walking, we are actually in touch or feeling the sensation, the felt sensations of the movement, that really gets us to the inside of our body, so to speak. And we're really full in the experience of it. That makes a huge difference. I mean, I've just noticed myself in practice, when I'm moving about embodied in that way, the practice is much more continuous. And when I'm up a level, of kind of simply knowing I'm moving about, but not so deeply connected to the sensations of the movement, it's easier to drift into more or less mindfulness. So that's just another suggestion of how actually to do this. When Saito Bandita first came here, the first time he taught was in 1984. And we, we didn't know him before then. I'm sure you've heard different stories about him. Very demanding teacher. Uh, and inspiring. So my, I and 
many of my friends and colleagues were sitting with him. And my colleague Sharon Salzberg was also on the retreat. And she told afterwards that, I don't know, maybe for the first, I don't know exactly, but something like the first weeks of her practice, a month of, it was a three-month retreat, practice with him, she would go in for the interview, and all he would say was, what did you feel when you were brushing your teeth? Of course, she had no idea. So, and then, so, okay, that was the end of the interview. So she went back, and okay, next time, really paying attention. Okay, what actually is being felt? Next time she'd come in already all report on that, but he wouldn't ask her that anymore. He'd say, what did you feel when you're brushing your hair? This went on for weeks. But she said, as tormenting as it was, it really, to an immeasurable extent, uh, developed the continuity of her practice, realizing that everything is equal. Every activity we do from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, and we divide the day on the schedule, but really it's the same mind-body process going on, and we want to develop that habit of continuous attention. So continuity, as we've talked about and will continue, is just super important because that's what develops the momentum of mindfulness. And we need that momentum. It's the momentum which brings us to that place of real effortlessness in the practice. So I'll just, I'll just give an example I mentioned in the group today. You know, if we're learning to ride a bike, and we're just learning how to do it. It wouldn't do any good to say, well, just relax, get on the bike, relax, and then just pedal. They're going to fall over. (laughs) There has to be kind of an initial effort to pedal, to get the bike moving, to get the momentum. And then when the momentum is there, then it's possible to just be there and coast for a while because there's enough momentum and energy to keep it going. But then at another point, that momentum, we lose it, and you really have to start pedaling again to regain the momentum. So it's the same thing in practice. There comes times when it becomes completely effortless, and we'll talk about that a little later, but we need to develop the momentum of mindfulness to actually get ourselves established there. So that's why understanding, and it's the reason I'm talking about right effort so much tonight, we need to understand how to apply it appropriately at different stages of our practice. So the first, you know, as, as I mentioned, just really connecting with the sensations of the breath, checking the attitude of the mind, working with the non-interference, then the intentionality to be steady with just an in-breath or an out-breath. So all of these things are what help us to build the momentum uh, of our practice.
just want to emphasize that the adjustments we make to our effort and to our, inten- our intentionality, remember that this is an art. It's very subtle. It doesn't take much. It's just we need the most delicate touch in doing this. So it's not to jump in with this big crash and, okay, I'm going to make all this effort. and Just the slight, just the slight increase of our intention to be steady will have an effect. A slight understanding that we need to relax a little more is enough. So pay attention to this. Pay attention to the delicacy with which you adjust the effort. Because people are often just turning the dial too quickly, too fast, too much, one way or another. And it's just its so subtle, but it has powerful effect. Okay, so we've gotten this far in the practice. It's moving along. We begin to get a sense of the right effort and you know, we keep adjusting it. So then at a certain point, which you've probably reached already, what we'll become aware of are different hindrances in the mind. You know, that's the Buddhist, Buddhist jargon, hindrance for, for seductive mind states that can really take us away from the path. And Walt is going to talk in much more detail about all of these because they're really important to understand more fully. I just want to mention in passing, you know, so there's mindsets like desire and aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. These are the kinds of mind states that really become an obstacle if we don't know how to work with them. And each one has a very unique hook. It's very interesting. It's like, Okay, how does how does aversion grab us? You know, how do how do we get caught by desire? Or how do we get seduced by sloth and torpor? It's all very interesting to look at these mind states and see, okay, where is the seduction? Because we can know that they're not helpful and yet get caught in them again and again. So this is part of the interest of the practice of just exploring our own minds, our own experience. With regard to the hindrances, there are two general approaches. And there's going to be a lot more specific detail. So this is just a general approach. So one style with regard to the hindrances, which are unskillful mind states, and they, they just lead to suffering, is we might call it the effort of the heroic bodhisattva. And so like the Buddha before his enlightenment was called the bodhisattva being, going towards full awakening. So as a bodhisattva, he, like all of us, struggled with the hindrances. But he was from the warrior caste and he had this warrior mode of effort. So this is... This is what he said 
his expression of his approach toward working with it. If the end is attainable by human effort, I shall not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. That's planting the flag. <laughs> you know, and there's something inspiring about that, but to me anyway, it's like somebody for whom that was the appropriate way. Just arousing this heroic effort. I'm gonna deal with this. I'm gonna it said on the night of his enlightenment, and this is the story anyway, he sat down with the resolve, I'm not going to get up from this seat until full awakening. Imagine coming into the hall with that resolution. <laughs> you could try it. It's like, okay. <laughs> but even if we don't quite reach his level of... <laughs> but that, that is an approach. And there are some people for whom that's the natural approach. They're inspired by the challenge of difficulty. You know, okay, I'm going to do this. So it would be worth seeing whether that's a part of yourself that you could tap into, really arousing that heroic quality of effort. There's another approach, which is quite different, and might call it the approach of the gentle warrior or something like that. And it's exemplified by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Many of you might know Vietnamese uh, meditation master and poet and peace activist, so quite an exceptional being. So this is what he wrote. He was talking about anger and aversion. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. So that's a whole different approach. That's like maybe how a mother would be with their child. You know, maybe the child's having a tantrum and if the mother happens to be in a mode of patience... (laughs) You know, how would you, you would just be there and supportive. You know, you you wouldn't necessarily at that point, if you're in a good space, not get angry, not get reactive, not saying they shouldn't be feeling it. It's it's okay. It's okay to, we would just be there in a loving way with the difficulty, and just that attitude allows it to pass through. So it's interesting as we know that almost instinctively, what the right attitude is if we were with a child, but we rarely apply it to ourselves. We rarely think, oh, what's the right attitude for me to have with these difficult emotions? And it's usually not that. You know, usually we get caught up, we justify them, or we judge them, or whatever. And not just as technology, just to be with it in this loving, tender way. 
Now, both of these approaches are useful for different people and for each of us at different times. So, you know, if we're filled with a lot of self-judgment or self-hatred or unworthiness, or, you know, that has been our conditioning for whatever reason, kind of this hard-hitting, heroic effort, I'm going to overcome these defilements, that may not be the right approach. It may just be increasing the self-judgment. And so if that's our mode, we would want the Thich Nhat Hanh approach, you know, just more gentle, more open, more tender with it. On the other hand, or at different times, if we just are continually indulging these unwholesome states, which can happen, you know, it's like desires and fantasies or what we feel is justified anger or whatever. And if we're just endlessly caught up in these, then the more heroic approach might exactly be appropriate. Okay, enough. Not, that can be done without aversion. And I, I, at one point in my practice, when I was, there were a lot of desire fantasies coming up in my mind, just oh, and, and I saw that they were there, so I was mindful to that extent, but they just kept coming. So at a certain point, I was trying lots of different things, and then finally, it's almost like taking out the sword of wisdom. Okay, enough. Joseph, do you want to think or get enlightened? <laughs> you know, it's like give myself a talking to. <laughs> and it helps. You know, because my mind had just gotten too allowing for it, for something that was unhelpful and and, unskillful. So do you see how at different times each of these approaches can be helpful? So it's not that one is right and one is wrong. We have to see what's appropriate. I said this talk was a little long. Do you have a few more minutes in you? <laughs> I'm very sensitive to this because my first teacher, Manindraji, would just give endless talks. <laughs> he once gave a three-hour talk on 21 kinds of silence. <laughs> I was just sitting, <laughs> so I'm very aware, <laughs> but I'll you okay a little longer? <laughs> Sometimes the colleagues are the worst. <laughs> what? You went two minutes over. <laughs> Not these guys. trying to decide what to edit out and what to put in. So I think I'll I'll just... So another just general framework for understanding 
different approaches to practice and different applications of right effort. The two approaches which we might, or have been called, building from below or swooping from above. And they're two quite different approaches, but I found them very interesting. Building from below starts with an awareness of the suffering that we're in, whatever it is, whether it's physical suffering or psychological, emotional, situational. And building from below really connects us with the reality of our present experience. We're not denying it, we're not trying to cover it, we're not bypassing it. We're really there and we're looking carefully at the nature of the suffering and beginning to, to work very specifically with the nitty-gritty of our experience. You know, and working with the hindrances very directly and seeing how we can free ourselves from them. Building from below connects us with the immediacy of what's happening right now, and particularly in times of difficulty, in times of challenges. Swooping from above begins with a glimpse or even a momentary recognition of the open, innate wakefulness of the mind. That there's a quality of awareness or wakefulness that is innate to the mind. And so we could connect with the mind's essential purity and then practice stabilizing that glimpse. So do you see the difference? One is just diving into the difficulties and the challenges and trying to understand them and work through them. The other, the swooping from above, is we, t- we touch or taste or recognize the essential purity of the mind that is already there. It's not we have to get and we get a glimpse of that, and then, okay, we practice stabilizing that. So both of these are grounded in the teachings of the Buddha. So one perspective is highlighted where the Buddha said, I I see no beginning to beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths. So this this is samsara, beginningless. We've We've been hurrying and hastening through these round of rebirths. fueled by ignorance and ensnared by craving. So this is where the building from below, yeah, this, this ignorance has been with us from beginningless time. We have to understand it. We have to really go into it in order to free ourselves. On the other side, the 
Buddha talked about the nature of mind is luminous. It is defiled by visiting defilements. The nature, the nature of the mind is luminous. It is freed from visiting defilements. So in this perspective, the highlight, the understanding is the mind is essentially pure, but the defilements come at certain times, out of certain conditions, but they are not inherent to the mind. They're visitors to the mind. So from that understanding, we can see, okay, can I recognize and rest in the innate purity? So these are the two, this building from below, swooping from above. Although given the choice, we would probably all opt for innate purity. Yeah, oh yeah, let's just rest in the innate purity of mind and sail onwards. But it's important to remember that both are simultaneously true. It's not that one is true and one is not. They're both true. And we need to be honest about where we are in our practice and see which perspective at any particular time will help. Because if we apply the wrong perspective, it just creates more suffering. So if our minds are continually distracted, just jumping from one thing to another, that is not uncommon. You know, just going along, we don't have any stability of attention or awareness. The suggestion, oh, well, just rest in the natural purity of your mind. It's not going to have much meaning. (laughs) You know, we're, we're not even able to rest with the breath. And so, you know, to give this very high teaching, rest in the purity of the mind, it's just not appropriate for where we are. And the building from below will be much more helpful. We'll really go into the hinges and understand and develop some facility of freeing ourselves from them. If, on the other hand, you know, the mind is very self-judgmental, and we're caught in a lot of striving and struggling, and there's just a lot of tension in how we're practicing. Moments of swooping from above may be exactly the right thing, of just the reminder, oh, already aware. There's nothing I have to do to get it. It's already here. And I had this experience on one retreat with Upandita where striving to the shadow side, it's very easy to fall into the striving mode you know, in that system. So it has to be done skillfully. But at one point I was caught up in unskillful striving and wanting and expectation. But having been familiar with these other teachings, I just reminded myself in the midst, right in the retreat, but in the midst of that struggle, oh, Joseph, already aware. And it was amazing. Instantaneously, just in the... I could just feel my mind relax back from all that wanting and expectation. So do you see how the two approaches really feed each other and support each other? Uh, And we can use them at different times.
Okay, I'll, I'll close with two stories. They're actually uh, they're stories of two Greek myths, which illustrate how each of these approaches, swooping from above and building from below, each one has a strength and a weakness. And the strength of one addresses the weakness of the other, which is why I found that somehow holding both allows us to navigate skillfully what our experience is, because we can, we can apply the appropriate perspective. So the two myths... The first one is the, the myth of uh, Daedalus and Icarus. So Daedalus was this master craftsman of ancient times who was being held on the island of Crete by the rulers. And he wanted, he wanted to leave. So he crafted wings and applied, you know, out of wood or something, and then applied uh, feathers to the wings and and attached it with wax, you know. And so created some kind of wing, and this obviously is the story and the myth, and he was able to fly, you know, with these wings. And he made a pair also for his son, Icarus, because they were both being held. And Daedalus cautioned his son, don't fly too close to the sun because it's going to melt the wax. And But Icarus being this enthusiastic young man, you know, and he, he has his first set of wings, and he's flying through the air, and, you know, and just went up toward the sun, and sure enough, the sun melted the wax, he fell to the, into the sea and died. So if we're using the swooping from above in an inappropriate time or way, that's what can happen. Because we think we're applying some high profound teaching, but we're not in a place at that particular point necessarily where that's going to be the right teaching. And so, oh yes, it's all pure, it's all innately pure and eternally aware and but if we're not in that space and we're just imagining that we're practicing that we just come crashing down on the other side when we need that swooping from above this is a poem from a book called parables and portraits by stephen mitchell and this is about the the story the myth of sisyphus do you know he was condemned to roll this huge stone up the mountain, and just as he reached the top, it would fall down to the bottom? And so his eternal punishment was that. So this is, this is Stephen Mitchell's take on this myth, and I really like this. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. So sometimes our lives may feel like that. You know, we're just endlessly shouldering the struggle of our lives. 
The truth is that Sisyphus is, is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Tragedy is the inertial force of the mind. And so this is the other side. We can get so caught in the story of our lives, and we all have our stories, you know, and the challenges and the difficulties and the suffering and all of it. That's like the rock that we're pushing up this mountain. And in many ways, just as Stephen, his interpretation anyway, In some way, we have fallen in love with our story, even when it involves a lot of suffering. And we just keep on, we just keep on the same patterns, you know, doing the same thing again and again, which creates the same kind of suffering, not realizing that we're permitted at any time to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. So in this example, going home is that connection to the innate purity of mind, to the innate awareness of mind. We don't have to work through every life situation or every struggle or every difficulty and through analysis and investigation and all of that, although at times that's what's needed. We don't want to be Icarus trying to fly to the sun at the wrong time and crashing to the earth. But we also don't want to be Sisyphus, endlessly in love with our suffering and our story, and to see that there is a way to actually touch a place of freedom that is always here. So this is, I don't know, I hope, I hope you've gotten some sense of the, the dimensions of the practice and how right effort it's just this exploration of okay, how do how do I explore this whole domain, you know, from the very specific specifics of working with the breath and the steadiness of mind, the intentionality, to the larger frame of understanding, what's our basic relationship and what's the appropriate response to the situations of our lives. You know, is it building from below and really getting in there and Uncovering and discovering, is it swooping from above and really having a glimpse even of that taste of freedom that is already there? Uh, so this is, the, this is the joy of the practice and the interest of the practice. And it's not always easy. Or it's challenging, but that's okay. It's good to be challenged. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry for the... <laughs> I'm going over. But why don't we sit for just a minute or two?
merit of our practice and our time together be dedicated to the welfare and the happiness and the awakening of all beings everywhere. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insighthour.